you're getting like me as well. A bit of a lockdown hair going on there. You need a need a lockdown. Big hair time, going. big time. Look at that. Yeah, similar. Yeah. Have you got more at the front? I got more at the front. Yeah, you've you've got quite a hair, hairline, quite a high hairline, haven't you? Not if I pull it forward. No, 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 you haven't. It's the way you wear your hair. It is, yeah. Yeah, you wear your hair more like emo, like me. This is sheer isolation. It's presented by Kieran Moore in Trowbridge and John Ponting in Cricklade. Welcome, everybody. Thank you for joining us once again. This is Sheer Isolation with myself, John, in Cricklade. Kieran is in Trowbridge. Howdy, Kieran. Still. Hello, John. You had some maracas a minute ago, and now they've changed to a pencil. Still got the maracas, mate. Are you going to shake them? Yeah. Shit, they're money makers. <laughs> they're quite diddy maracas. You got small maracas, mate. I don't want to have to tell you this, but <laughs> they're for a child. They're a child's maracas, John. But anyway, this show is all about promoting the local music scene across the west of England. We have got a guest coming up later on. We have got uh, a nice mix of music, uh, some metal, melodic metal coming up. Some melodic but, metal. But uh, start with our guest, Tony McLaughlin. Who is Tony McLaughlin? So Tony is a gentleman I had the absolute pleasure of working with for three years when I worked at Discovery Records in Caution. And Tony was our sales rep. His job was to basically hawk our wares around the country and and sort of sell into shops. Uh, You know, you should be stocking this record because, and then he'd try and flog them. He was absolute gentleman. He will have some amazing stories to tell. His history and background is pure music, has been for his entire life and goes right back to wherever. Um, so, yeah, he's an absolute legend and I love him to bits. And I thought, well, let's get him on to find out because people probably don't know that these sorts of people exist and what their job is and how, how, they, how they do it. So actually quite an interesting angle and story for our listeners. I was going to say, is this kind of career still in existence in a, in a musically digital world? That's uh, a good question. So when I was at Discovery, Tony was on the road and I think there was only sort of another six other people from different companies still doing that job. Uh, so the answer to your question is probably not no. And it doesn't matter if a, if a particular job role becomes kind of redundant or, or extinct because of technology, because once upon a time I, I was a journalist before before the Internet arrived and then. Yeah, then you don't really need journalists that, as, as many of these days. And then we all become journalists because we and got... And I've ended up here. So it's not <laughs> a loss. <laughs> so... I, I can put my skills to some kind of use trying to keep you on the correct side of libel. <laughs> yes, just about. <laughs> so uh, we'll move on to our track and we've got uh, a tune from a band called Next Stop. It's not a band I'm familiar with at all, Kieran. <laughs> uh, John, they're called Next Stop Olympus. Oh, jeez. I thought, <laughs> right. So what's the tune then? I've just got a file called Next Stop Olympus. It, logically, a bit of that would be the band and a bit of that would be the name of the song. I'm really sorry. I didn't realise that's <laughs> what it said, but you're absolutely right. So just bear with me and I will tell you what the track is called. <laughs> it's basically Next Stop Olympus are a band f- technically from Salisbury. However, their frontman stroke singer is a guy called Connor McHenry, who I've known in devises for... Years he, since he was a wee small kid, um, turning up at gigs, all the like, floppy fringes, and like you know, screamo, and all that. Um, so he's a lo- lovely kid for a long time. And this is his new band. This is a track called Hell to Bear.
Right, so that was Hell to Bear from Next Stop Olympus. Kieran, you've actually picked a tune which was under six minutes this week, so thank you for that. Is this a new release or has it been out for a while? No, it's a brand new release, not been seen yet. Uh, we are the very first, so this is it. This is it. That's an exclusive. Oh. A complete exclusive, yes. Kieran, have you got any product placement this week? I, I know you were waiting for some stuff to arrive. I'm still waiting for it to arrive. Nothing's come. I'm most disappointed. Oh. Is, it, is it coming from Europe, maybe? There's, there is a bit <laughs> of disruption there, isn't there? <laughs> yeah, there is. Zoe, Zoe bought something from Europe last week and they emailed her to say basically they're not going to send it. She's got a friend in Europe. They can send it to their friend and that friend then can post to the UK that circumnavigates any paperwork. Right. We will move on to today's guest, uh, Kieran, who is a, a chap you have known for years and years and years. And you've worked with him. It's Tony McLaughlin, who is kind of a, a sales rep for the music industry. Sales rep for, the, for, yeah, for distributors. He's sales rep. He used to go up and down the country selling records. I've never met anybody so knowledgeable about music and not so much music as in the structure and the songs and, you know, how to write, but about music itself, you know, people, labels, um, artists, history, genres, the, the development of the genre, all that kind of stuff. He just staggering. His knowledge is just incredible. Well, we will go straight over to that interview then. You guys were out of, out of pride, just didn't butt in at all. I just left you guys to it. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was a nice, it was a nice conversation. I enjoyed that. Don't see him enough. Distributors come in various shapes and sizes, but what we are, what we tend to do is we represent exclusively for a particular country or a territory different record labels. On the behalf of those record labels and the releases that they put out, we, to various degrees, do their sales, their marketing and any promotion that the product or the artists and projects are required. It's that simple. There's no overcomplicating it. And if somebody does, they usually try to get something out of you that they don't need to get out of you. And if you're stupid enough to let them, then so be it. So tell me, Tony, how did you get into this line of work? Okay, we need to go back to the mid 80s. I was in a band and I ended up in New York for six months and we were attached to Frank Zappa's management company. I know that sounds long winded and far fetched, but it was. Um, not at all, not at all. It was good fun, et cetera, et cetera. I was 20, 21 years old. I was the oldest in the band, believe it or not. But there was this great record shop or a group of record shops in New York, uh, which was Tower Records. We built up a bit of following in, the, in London, certainly, had some record company interest. And we had the opportunity to go to New York on the invite of Frank Zappa's management company because the title of the band was a, a Frank Zappa song called Camarillo Brillo. I met lots of people in New York that were from Tower Records. And when we were when our visas were running out after six months, some of the Tower Records, you know, hey guys, you know, we're opening in a shop in the big shop in London. Why don't you, if you're not doing anything, why don't you apply? And suddenly I found myself basically half running the classical department of Tower Records at Piccadilly Circus. It was a bit of a, I think, a bit of a shock to the UK system that an upstart like Tower could just walk in and become probably one of the most successful and probably one of the best record shops that ever existed in the United Kingdom. Well, that's uh, a big boast. I think it's actually quite a, a modest boast because oh. it certainly it, ups, it upset the Apple cart. I mean, HMV were originally, let's, let's say, upset by Virgin Megastores 
And then this thing came along and upset Virgin Megastores and H&B in one fell swoop. <laughs> UK stores were running on what was master bags, which is now your uh, computer systems. But the American system ran on more of a book store type system where the record companies or the book companies, as it would be in book things, would go into the shops, count the stock every month, show the buyers what you had in stock, look at what new releases were coming, but also if any of the stock related to any live activity was going on and then you would put it in. But the deal was you put as much in as you like, but what didn't sell, you take out as well. So you were becoming a more of a depository rather than just a pure uh, selling to a retail outlet. The Piccadilly store in London was a magnet for musicians, tourists, and looking at where its site is at Piccadilly Circus. You know, that, that is a world site. That is yeah. Times Square, Piccadilly Circus, Brandenburg Gate. There are not many places in the world where you could put a retail site and everybody, everybody knows what it is and where it is. So it became a default place to go. For me, it was an incredibly fantastic time. It was hard work. We didn't get paid very much. Okay, right. Bear, so... bear in mind that that shop did not close till midnight. Even in London, it didn't close yeah, till midnight. My job, was, my job was to close it on a midnight, on a Friday night, and I did wow. see some very strange sights. Yeah, well, I was about to say, right, let's, let's talk about some of your notable things that you can remember that just really encapsulated the craziness of the time. I mean, that department was, uh, that whole shop was basically a non-stop party for everybody. Even the classical people got involved. Now, right next to the classical department, looking over Piccadilly Circus, was the soundtrack department. Now, there was a a certain type of um, background of a certain type of gentleman that used to frequent these places. And on a Friday night, it would become a bit of a meeting place, let's say. And bearing Ah. in mind that we were right next to Soho, it got a bit (laughs) fun. And... There was one particular manager, and, uh, and he, was, uh, he was quite tall, great, balding gentleman, quite flamboyant. And there was one Friday evening I was in there. And I, well, one of the things with Tower is it had, you had to physically count the stock. So you had the stock on the shelves, and underneath you had the excess stock. And I was literally, it must have been seven or eight o'clock at night. And I'm on my hands and knees and I'm counting these records. And this guy who ran the place came up behind me and grabbed me. And I said, get off me, you dirty old... At which point he stood and he put his arms out. He went, dirty always, old, never darling. At which point the whole department, I looked around, it was all of these men, gave a massive round of applause. Flash forward many, many years later, you end up at Discovery with me. This is where we met. We met at Discovery. What a change in the industry between those two points in time? So late 80s to the mid-noughties, let's just say. Very little. Really? I think it's changing now probably more, more than it did then. For example, I, I really, if you, were, if you were a buyer in a record shop, do I really need to come and see you? If you give me half an hour face-to-face on a one-to-one or a Zoom meeting, yeah. I could do exactly what I needed to do, which may have taken me an hour and a half in a shop because the person who's doing the buying is still serving customers. They're still having to do everything else. And, you know, yeah. at 50 to 75% of your time is actually just trying to work your way around a buyer. Now that's a hell of a lot of time. Yeah. But then again, if you've got an album, you know, let's say that we go around with a, a bag of between anywhere between 20 to a hundred new releases every month. 
it's important to get those sellers in so that if I even just get one copy of an album in and it sells once a week, that's 52 copies that it sells in a year. If I've got 50 albums in my bag, how many of them do I need to sell weekly? Plus are the ones that are going to sell a couple of hundred in the first few weeks. Yeah. And you do that month after month after month after month, and you're building up a business, you're building up a solid base. As long as you're good at what you, I wouldn't say good at what you're doing, but at least honest with what you're doing, the shops will get to know that what you say to them is true, which actually by saying, having that statement tells you that so yeah. many people go to do the selling are not being truthful. Not being honest. the people who told them what to say are not being truthful. So just one last question, Tony. Can you, can you remember the biggest records that just took off? Like you've, you've put in, I don't know, a dozen and it's just taken off and gone crazy. Uh, well, I'll give you two examples. I did, I, I had by default, I ended up looking after Jean-Michel Jarre. Now that wasn't, right. that wasn't new releases. That just went on the shelf and it just, it moved and it moved and it, moved. it didn't have to do anything. That Jean-Michel Jarre, you could say, subsidised the label that he was actually on, which was actually a French jazz label. There was no other electronic contemporary music stuff it was it was a French jazz label. Francis Dreyfus, who who owned that label, somehow picked up Jean-Michel Jarre very early on, locked him into a good contract, and that was him made forever. Another good one that I ended up by uh, was Robert Miles. I think most people know Robert Miles' Children, which right. was probably one of the biggest house tracks ever. And in, in my discussions with him, it was a... A freak accident of how he made it. It was kind of a after a night out, keyboards and instruments set up, just came up with and kind of built up a few beats out. And next thing you know, it's one of the biggest selling tracks ever, ever made. He wanted to do a little bit more interesting music, which was the album that he came to me with. There's a guy called Trilok Gertu. Trilok Gertu is an Asian percussionist who kind of made his name with a guy called John McLaughlin in the jazz world. I distributed, I think, three or four of the Trillock Gertie albums. He came to me. I gave him it straight as it was. You know, we had HMV, Virgin and independent shops. If we do this advertising, we can put this many on the shelves on day one. What happens to it after that is up to people to go in the shops. Well, he said, he basically said, oh, you're the first per- person that spoke to me in English about this. <laughs> as in... As in, and I came with layman's the, uh, terms that he could understand. <laughs> well, it's, it's. I think there's too many people in that world that come along and say, "Oh, if you do four pages in the Face magazine over six months, which this album did, you'll sell a million copies." And it's like, no, it's Trillo Gurdy, who's an Asian percussionist, mate. It's not going to happen. <laughs> We're now kind of moving away from physical CDs into a more of a streaming world. We have done for the last five, ten years. So, how yeah. how do you see your your role or that part of the record industry shifting? Can it shift into a, a streaming? world no one of the things because it's the publishers really that start to take over from that side of it i i I do own a publishing company not for that particular reason just because i accidentally ended up somebody needed to have royalties collected and i set up a publishing company to do that and i've ended up with a couple couple of artists when it comes to a downloading world or whatever the income is much smaller my part of it the physical distribution side of it is very much a disappearing world and it becomes a game of numbers and mass quantity rather than the art of actually saying, you know what, I can see what dates you've got, I can see what you've sold previously. If we do an ad here and an ad there with this retailer, we can sell X amount 
which will give us the potential to sell another X amount. That part of this industry has virtually disappeared. Right, Tony. Well, that has been incredibly fun and insightful. Uh, it's a pleasure catching up with you. We always invite a guest to pick a song for us to play. So would you like to pick a tune for us this week? It's not very cool, but I think it sums it all up. It's You Are What You Is by Frank Zappa. And what, why that particular track? Just because it sums up what you've been talking about. Well, yeah, it's, it, sums up you, it sums up everything that you do. And the fact that I worked with him for six months and the management company in New York, it means a lot to me. Plus, it was something that I was, let's say, listening to in an alternative state of mind when I was younger. <laughs> Who I was in 
So we have just played You Are What You Is from Frank Zappa, which was a track picked by our guest today, Tony. And it has an incredibly psychedelic video, so I'm hoping you know, you're going to enjoy watching that. <laughs> Time for some news then. And I noticed that a friend of, friend of the show, Big Jeff, has his own art exhibition in Bristol. Did you see this, Karen? I did not. This sounds amazing. Um, I didn't realise that Jeff has been doing a bit of painting over lockdown and, and previous to this. He's been painting. That's interesting that he's now got an exhibition. So there is an exhibition currently on show at the Bristol Beacon. And if you're not familiar with that venue, it's... Uh, previously known as the Seabomb the Hall. Celebs have already been lining up to buy the stuff because obviously Big Jeff is, is a well-known name in, around, yeah. uh, around the Bristol music scene. Like Musicians and, and people all, all across the industry know of Big Jeff, want him to be at their gigs and want to promote him. Having Big Jeff at your gig is a mark of being famous in Bristol, really, isn't it? It absolutely is, yeah. If you, you've not made it until Jeff's coming to your show. Yeah. Also, we can't really go unless you're in Bristol then, uh, and doing your daily exercise trip. You're not going to be able to see it. So I'm not sure if there's a virtual way of seeing it or what. Maybe we can get Jeff on and have, have a chat. Funny you should mention that, John. I Literally, but just before I came on this Zoom to chat to you, I was looking at a virtual art gallery. The chap in, in Chippenham, uh, not Chippenham, in Trowbridge, who's just uh, announced a virtual tour around a virtual art gallery. And it's exactly that. It's a white-walled, as you'd expect, art gallery that you sort of zoom in and zoom out and you twist your phone around and you look at pictures. The, the exhibition is called Welcome to My World. So if you want to Google that, Welcome to My World, Big Jeff, you will um, find more details about it. Amazing. Uh, one other piece of news, I'm just hogging the news. Um, last week we spoke to Simon, who's um, part of the Forest Live team, who puts on the gigs at Westonbert Arboretum amongst yes. some other venues. And we were talking about, are they going to go ahead? And he was very optimistic. A day later, it came out in, in the news that the government's been told that small festivals could be seen as being as safe as going to the supermarket by the summer, which is positive. I saw that. Yeah, that's really positive, isn't it? Obviously, the, the festival organisers will have to put certain COVID socially mm-hmm. restrictive things in place. And, and we hope that these smaller events will be able to happen, uh, providing we stay on the trajectory we're currently on. Which we'd like to think that we can. We can behave and we can do this. So if we behave ourselves, festivals are a go. Woo! We'll be sensible until the festivals and then we can have a weekend of sheer debauchery. Absolutely. Socially distance, obviously. Can you, can you debauch socially distance? Uh, we're going to give it a bloody good go. <laughs> <laughs> can you debauch socially distance? Mm-hmm. Right. Um, email us, shearisolation at gmail.com. Get in touch with us with any new tunes, any videos, any music news you want to share. Kieran, is there any news from yourself? I appreciate we are running out of time. The only news is that um, earlier today I did confirm with Town Hall in Trowbridge. They have just done some filming 
which has been done sponsored by Wiltshire Rural Music and The Pump, who obviously I am part of, are going to do a similar thing with some of our artists there in due course. So slightly uh, different group of artists that it's aimed at, but the overall aim is to engage musicians, engage our local community and engage the venue. Oh, and that, that follows a gig you did there, what, two weeks ago at, at Town Hall? So that, they, those ones were the recordings of the Wiltshire Rural Music. That was the recordings of theirs. So we're going to do more recordings, but this time under the auspices of the pump. Cool, Kieran, we are up to our time. Our quota has run out. So thank you for joining me. Thanks for listening, everybody. Hope we've managed to entertain you for another half hour. We will be back at the same time, same place next week. Doodles. Doodles. <laughs> <laughs>